Please take your Bibles and turn with me this evening to Mark chapter 9. And I would direct your attention to that section marked out as verses 33 to 40. So Mark chapter 9, verses 33 to 40. We'll just read the first couple of verses. And he came to Capernaum, and being in the house, he asked them, What was it that ye disputed among yourselves by the way? But they held their peace. For by the way they had disputed among themselves who should be the greatest. The natural man in his natural state lifts himself up. He lifts himself up first and foremost in his own heart. And if given the opportunity, he will lift himself up in every other way as well. This is true of all men. We have uh, that notable example of the very wicked philosopher Nietzsche, who denied the existence of God on the grounds that if a God existed, he could not bear to not be him. This is the nature of the natural man, to lift up himself. And correspondingly, it is also of his nature to bring God down, to bring God down so that he is uh, thought of as at man's level, to be something not too worried about, to, 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 to function in ways that are similar to us, which is why the, in the proliferation of depraved idolatry throughout the world, the gods, false gods, so often resemble those who have created them in the figments of their own uh, imaginations. But when the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ comes, and as it were, the windows of heaven are opened and the light shines down upon us in that gospel, what happens? God is set before us as one who is high above the highest heavens, beyond all that we can possibly comprehend. He's set forth in his majesty, in his holiness, in his glory, in, his, in all of his attributes. We see him as he is. And likewise, in the gospel, we see more realistically and accurately who we are. And so man is put down into the dust. Man is laid low in the gospel so that we see the, the bankruptcy of our souls. We see the fact that our lives are littered with all sorts of transgression and iniquity against this holy God. We take our place in the dust. And in the gospel, as we've said so many times, we stoop low to come through that gospel door. The Lord Jesus Christ becomes everything. We are found to be nothing. And we come by faith to lay hold of him as the all in all and sufficiency of, of his people. All of this is true in terms of what the gospel brings to our, our wayward souls. But lo and behold, we have within us yet this, this lurking tendency yet to think more low of God than we ought and to think more high of ourselves uh, than, than we ought. And so the Lord comes to us. He comes in and among us to, to help us. And here in this passage, we see Christ as the great physician. Here is the Lord Jesus Christ coming to his dis disciples. And he, of course, has 
the ability to penetrate beyond what is merely seen with the physical eye. He has the ability to see into the heart of men. And so he sees into the hearts of his, his own disciples, the natural maladies that afflicted their, their souls. And as a physician, he comes to heal them, not to hurt them, mind you. We come to passages like this and we think, oh no, you know, this is a passage that smacks us back down to the ground. No, he, he rather comes to heal. And of course, in the wonder of the gospel, uh, the, the humility that is produced in the work of the Holy Spirit, rather than, than crushing and grinding and obliterating, lifts up, raises the Lord's people, raises them. Indeed, Jesus sets us in the direction of the true heights, the highest heights. And so here he's pulling back layers, and he's, he's diagnosing what's going on in, in these disciples in order that he, he might heal them. They started small, of course, but they've been growing and growing in their own minds about uh, a sense of their own selves. And in all of this, of course, uh, we find not just a depiction of these disciples, but a, a clear mirror that depicts ourselves. And so what's really happening is that not only do we come to this text and put ourselves into the disciples' place, but actually the Lord Jesus Christ comes in this text to us in order to teach us, in order to mold and to assist us. And in doing so, he confronts two of the most common evils uh, found in the heart of man and found, sadly, within the church of, of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we're going to consider those two evils and the Lord's gracious, condescending, and merciful healing uh, of these, these maladies. So two things. First of all, we begin with an elevated spirit. So first of all, an elevated spirit, elevated, lofty, right? Arrogant, proud, self-conceit, self-seeking, an ambitious spirit. It says that they were disputing among themselves who would be the greatest. Now, this is, this is remarkable at a number of, of, of points. It's astounding because if you, if you look at the context in which this is found, uh, we see in verse 31 that the Lord Jesus Christ uh, had done this. He had taught his disciples and said unto them, The Son of Man is delivered into the hands of men, and they shall kill him, and after that he is killed, he shall rise the third day. And so on one hand, we have the Lord Jesus Christ, who is in his state of humiliation, describing the depths of humiliation into which he is going to be willingly and voluntarily plunged. And it's against that backdrop that we have this text, where the disciples are disputing among themselves. You have self-sacrifice on the one hand, set in bold contrast to self-centeredness on the other. And so verse 33, 34 tells us that there's an argument that is unfolding, right? They're, they're reasoning among themselves. They're, they're actually employing arguments. They're disputing among themselves about who should be the greatest. 
Now, you think of these men. You think of their background. You think of where they've come. There's Levi sitting at the receipt of custom. I mean, you, you think of the fishermen and others. You think of the history of God's dealings with them, where they've come from, all they've gone through, and where they are now. You think of all of the, the teaching of the Lord Jesus Christ that they've heard, the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are the poor in spirit, right? all that they have heard. You think of all that they have seen in, in living with, in watching who the Lord Jesus Christ is, his own life and character and manner and actions, the example that has been that has been set before them. And yet, here they are. And they each are actually persuaded, undoubtedly, sincerely persuaded, that they have arguments for their own claim on being the greatest, on being the strongest, on being the highest, the most important. I mean, these are the disciples, mind you, who could not a short time ago even cast out a single demon. And had to go to the Lord to inquire, inquire why. But the same, of course, is true of us. You think of where you and I have come from. Where did the Lord find us? You think of all that, all that we've been through. You think of all of the teaching of God's word that is washed over us and through us. You think of all that we have seen about the glory of Jesus Christ, all that we know about who he is and what he does and what he's accomplished and so on and so forth. And yet this evening we find that the depiction of the disciples, which seems so crass when put in black and white in front of us, is actually to be found in our own hearts because pride is a sin that we cannot easily see in ourselves. Right? We, we think of it in terms of, we'll, we'll cloak it in all sorts of language. I'm grateful that the Lord has given me these gifts. I'm grateful that the Lord has done this for me. I'm grateful that I don't have the problems that that person has. I'm grateful I don't struggle with the sins that they have, whatever. There's lots of ways in which we, we cloak it. Pride is a sin that is very difficult to see in ourselves and yet so easy to detect in others and to detest in others. We may excuse ourselves, which is more pride, and downplay our shortcomings in this, in this respect. And yet we're very short when it comes to other people. Pride is what makes us so easily take offense at times, so easily to get our hackles up, to feel injured and offended, uh, to be snippy and irritable, and so on. Pride is what lies, as the book of Proverbs tells us, behind every contentious spirit. There is no contentious person without pride. Pride is what is the engine behind a, a contentious spirit. Pride is what causes us to be defensive of our own selves. And people come to us and they make all sorts of accusations about us or they vent against us or they say all sorts of hard things about us. What should our response be if, if our souls are in the right place? Well, we can distinguish, we can sift what's being said. Some of it's right. We need to 
the root of what they're saying is true. But some of it's not right. It's just they're angry and they're saying stuff that's not true. But our response should be, you know what? Truth be told. You don't know the half of it. I'm a thousand times worse than you're accusing me. Some of the things may not be right that are being said. But thank the Lord, all the things that could be said aren't said because it's a thousand times worse to see ourselves truly as, as we ought to see ourselves. Right? The proud man can be praised and he engages in that secret self-engrandizement. The proud man can fail to be praised and he's bitter because of its absence. Right? This clings to us. It clings to us, not just to these disciples. It clings to us like our skin. It can spring up any second because there's deceit in our own heart. And it doesn't matter how low a person, how ignorant they are, how poor they are, how, how many advantages they don't have, how disadvantaged they, they are. It doesn't matter their state, their, their condition, their position. They can be as proud as a peacock as proud as the most powerful, rich, wealthy person in the world. This is why Martin Luther, who was no friend of the Pope, to say the least, could nevertheless say that he feared no Pope more than Pope self. He feared no Pope more than Pope self. And so here's the circumstances. This is the malady. And at this juncture, you, would, you might expect that the Lord Jesus Christ, who detects it, who draws it out, who, who brings it uh, to, to the surface, you might think, well, if a person is being lifted way up and they're proud, that what's necessary is for them to be smacked down, to crush them, to break them. And yet that's not what the Lord Jesus Christ does. That's not what the Lord Jesus Christ does at all. He comes to them in his tenderness, winsomely, he comes alongside and he puts right side up what they have sinfully turned upside down. And so you'll notice his answer. And he sat down and called the twelve and saith unto them, verse 35, if any man desire to be first, the same shall be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and set him in the midst of them and when he had taken him in his arms, he said unto them, Whosoever shall receive one of such children in my name receiveth me. And whosoever shall receive me receiveth not me, but him that sent me. The first thing that we notice here, and you see the same in the parallel texts, the Lord does not actually rebuke them for desiring to be great. He does not rebuke them for their desire to be the greatest or to be first. Rather, he rebukes them for the method and manner in which they seek that greatness. And so he comes below the surface of what men would, would answer. And he, he changes how we see and what we see. And he says, in fact, true greatness is defined by being last. True greatness is defined by being the least. True greatness is defined by being servant of all. And so he sets us back on the tracks and in essence says, go pursue true greatness. 
True greatness is a holy pursuit if it's pursued, pursued in the Lord's way. The Lord's way is to be the servant of all. This is why I entitled the sermon, the, 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 the Heights of Lowliness, that the humble, godly way actually exalts, biblically leads to, 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 to heights that the Lord, in fact, esteems. And so the Lord sees the thoughts of, of, of our hearts. And he brings this, this child in, and among them you'll recognize undoubtedly that um, uh, the first century is unlike the 21st century with our youth culture, where even old people try to look like young people. No, in the first century, children were, were not esteemed. They were not thought highly of. Right? They were, generally speaking, insignificant. They can contribute very little. They know very little, and so on and, and so forth. And so they were deemed insignificant. So different, mind you, from Christ's ministry. Because we have many, 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 many accounts of children in the, the ministry of our Lord who, who, who took to them and who blessed them and, and spoke to them and, and so on. But he uses uh, this, this child as, as an object lesson. He sets the, child, the child before them in, in the midst of them and took him into his arms and said, Whosoever shall receive one of such children in my name receiveth me. Here, the Lord is taking one, a child, who is unpretentious. Right? Children have sins and problems, but, but on the whole, to speak generally, they, they tend to be unpretentious, little children, humble. Tr- they're, they're very trustful. Right? There's, a, there's a, as we say, a childlike simplicity, a dependent spirit. They have a sense of their inability, weakness, feebleness, and so on and so forth. And the Lord is, is saying, here's, here's something of the model of the kind of spirit, the one whom they would have thought of as the least, who should be shooed out of the way. The Lord's bringing him and taking him into his, his arms. And so he's saying, he's not just saying, as so many think, he's not just saying, be like a child in this respect, this, this unpretentious, humble, you know, godly uh, manner. But notice what he says, who receiveth, who receives one of such children in my name, who welcomes the child in God's name. It's not just be like the child, but it's actually welcoming the child, right? Having love, having compassion. So it's, it's going to the one that they would have thought of as the least and bidding them a wide and warm welcome to take to take them as important, to give them attention, to, to focus on them, to even serve them. And he says, look, if you do this, if you receive a child and you've received Christ, you've received more, you've received one, uh, the one who sent uh, the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, greatness is not associating with the great. That's how the world thinks. You need to get inside the circle, right? You need to be running in in, in certain crowds. And so if you want to, if you want to move up, you got to get up into those, into those crowds where you can mingle as it were, and be identified with those who are deemed great. The Lord is saying, no, greatness is associating with those who are lowly to serve those who are in a low condition. This is humility, right? Humble service 
to Christ's little ones. Now, we don't have to think merely in terms of size. We don't have to think merely in terms of age here. But humble service to Christ's little ones is true greatness. What matters? What people around you right now think or what the Lord Jesus Christ will say on the last day? Because he's telling us now, this is true greatness. He will reveal on the last day and indeed will magnify true greatness then. And all of the worldlings with all of their stuff is going to be cast to the bats and the moles. And so we need to think now like will be clearly seen by all then. We need to think in terms of what true greatness is. It's the humble service of the Lord Jesus Christ. So he says, you know, if you give elsewhere, if you give even a, a cup of cold water in my name, it's as if you gave it up to me that on the last day when the Lord is rewarding his people for their labors, the secret labors, the unseen labors, the labors that were not esteemed by others, the minuscule labors, the lowly labors. He's saying every single instance was done as if it was done to me. And therefore it's rewarded as is done to the great king of glory with a royal reward that he himself could give. Of course this is the case because we can't lose sight of the one speaking. The Lord Jesus Christ embodies everything that is being said. Here is the one who, who actually in his very nature is of the highest heights. The one who himself is God. The one who has created the entire cosmos. The one who, who reigns as the Lord God omnipotent, the king of heaven. This is the Lord Jesus Christ and he has condescended in assuming to himself a human nature. He has humbled himself, Philippians 2 says, to take on the form of what? Of an earthly monarch, an emperor? No, the form of a servant. He came to serve. He came to take up the basin and the towel and to wash the grimy feet of his undeserving fickle disciples he came ultimately to serve in terms of his saving work and atonement what better service has ever been rendered to any soul than the service that jesus rendered when he saved that soul from sin and offering up himself as a sacrifice and so the lord jesus christ is turning everything right side up here they are seeking their self-elevation. And Christ is saying, no, greatness is defined by those who are the least. Greatness is defined by those who walk humbly with our God. And that too shouldn't surprise us because we get this in the Psalms. Right? We, we have this in Psalm 34. We have it in Psalm 51. We have it in other Psalms as well. We have it in Isaiah 66. The Lord looks upon those who are lowly and contrite heart. The Lord is near, close to those of humble and contrite spirits. The Lord doesn't despise those who, are, who have broken hearts and who tremble at his word. This is the Lord's way. Nearness to the Lord. And of course, nearness to the Lord is inescapably, involves inescapably humility. 
put ourselves low before him and to then turn and, 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 and take exquisite delight in humbly serving his humble people. Those that may be overlooked, this is the daily pursuit of, God, of greatness. To wake up every morning and to say, what is it that the Lord, the great King of heaven, would have me do? How can I give? How can I serve? How can I take my place humbly in this glorious enterprise in concrete, tangible ways, in the humble service of his people, with the spirit of a child, serving miserable sinners just like ourselves, with meekness and lowliness of heart, with the mind of Christ. This is what the Lord calls us to. The elevated spirit, no. He calls us to a lowly spirit, which is the pursuit of true greatness that leads to godly heights, the heights that the Lord Jesus Christ esteems most. But then secondly, we not, only have an we not only have an elevated spirit, we also have an exclusive spirit. There's also this exclusive spirit. And John answered him saying, Master, we saw one casting out devils in thy name. And he followed us and followed and he followed not us. And we forbade him because he followeth not us. But Jesus said, forbid him not. For there is no man which shall do a miracle in my name that can lightly speak evil of me. For he that is not against us is on our part. So here we see how this elevated spirit leads is actually inextricably tied to the exclusive spirit. When one is filled with the sense of self-importance, they begin to be prickly with regards to those that are around them. There's an exclusivity. So here we find this air of condescension, this, this cool aloofness or exclusivity, as I said. You know, these, these are not in the club. And this is something, too, that, that we can fall into uh, and be unaware of, and yet we detect so easily in others, right? You can sense it, you can smell it, you can feel it, you can taste it. This sense of being exclusive, of being boxed out, as it were, or of the craze of being on the inside and so on. For some of you right now, you're thinking of so-and-so. Be careful, my friend. Because if your mind is racing to others, hear me. The real question should be, is it I? Is it I? To what degree? Where? And how? Is it I? You see John's argument. He's taking the moral high ground. He's saying, look, these, these, these are not of us. Uh, these that we've come across, they're not with us, right? They're not following us. And so there's this, there's this we and them mentality. There's us over here and then there's those who are over there. We saw them doing these things and we forbade them. The temptation, of course, here is reflected in all of us. 
I mean, John is, uh, John is in essence saying, the work needs to stop for anyone and everyone who is not working with us. The work should stop entirely if they're not working with us. Now, you think about that. Not working with us, therefore, not working for Christ at all. When you put it in those terms, it becomes a little more clear to us, doesn't it? Do we desire for, for those who don't work with us to not work for the Lord Jesus Christ at all? This is the sectarian spirit that is being reflected here. We forbade them. We, we forbade them. No, the Lord is coming and he's saying, forbid him not. Right? Behind this is not only humility, but humility woven with love. Love for the brethren. There must be love for the brethren. For all the brethren. For every brother, every sister of the Lord Jesus Christ. All of those who were united to Christ are inescapably united to us. These are closer to us than our own flesh and blood. These are those that we will share an eternity with. And we must love the brethren. That love is not conditioned on whether they agree with us, that they associate with us, work with us. It's not even conditioned on whether they are right on everything that may differ with us. We're to love the brethren Nonetheless, the Lord Jesus Christ says, Forbid them not, for there is no man which shall do a miracle in my name. Remember earlier, they were casting out devils in thy name, it says, that can lightly speak evil of me. For he that is not against us is on our part or is, is for us. These, the disciples that had observed, were walking in the light that they had. They're walking in the light that, they, that, that had been given to them. Do we desire for people not to walk in the light that they've been given? It's appropriate, of course, to desire that they be given more light. That's very beautiful for us to desire that, just as we desire more light for ourselves. But do we desire them not to walk in the light that they've been given at all? The Lord says, no. The Lord says, forbid them not. If they're not against us, they're for us. And the fact is that, you know, even within the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, there are those, yeah, who, who differ with us, who are preaching nonetheless Christ and preaching the gospel. And let's be honest. The fact is they may exceed and be way ahead of us in many, many other areas. We may feel as if, well, we're Reformed and we have, we're Presbyterian and we have all these doctrines and our confession and we understand, you know, things about the nature of the Christian life and worship and other things and so on and so forth. But it may be that they even exceed us in areas of godliness and so on. The Lord is, is reminding us 
that we need to love our, our brethren, those who love the name, who don't lightly esteem the name of, of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we need to rejoice that the gospel is preached wherever it is preached, whenever it is preached. Jesus is, is, is in essence saying, don't tell them to stop. And the word to us is never think in such a sectarian way that it is as if we would have someone stop preaching the Lord Jesus Christ. May that never be the case. Now you'll notice as well, you think, well, what does this mean, Pastor? Nothing matters. You know, as long as someone loves, you know, they're preaching the Lord Jesus Christ. They say the Bible is the word of God and so on and so forth. And none of this other stuff matters. That's not at all what this text says. Indeed, everything else in your Bible contradicts that. You'll notice that Jesus doesn't say, leave me and go with them. He doesn't tell us to leave the light we've been given or to leave where we are to go with others. He doesn't tell them that. He says, don't tell them to stop laboring in my name, preaching the gospel. We need to walk in the light that we're given as well. As I was describing on the Lord's Day and talking to someone, you, you may recall that uh, illustration it was in the master's trumpet from John Brown of Wamfrey, a piece that we put in one page, one page piece, I don't know, many, many issues ago. But he's describing Reformation, and he says, you know, there's a big difference between those who are progressing in their Reformation, they're growing in their knowledge, and they pause as they take each step. And so they're only at this step. That's one thing for them. It's another thing for those who have gone beyond and gone up many, maybe flights of steps to greater light to be coming down the steps. They may fall on the same step, but they are spiritually in two radically different places. The person coming up is, is operating with the light they're given. The person coming down is retreating from light and they're culpable. And it is inexcusable in terms of the, the sin and affront that it is to the Lord. And so there's, there's something beautiful when there's a, the, we, we join you know, the love of truth with love for the brethren. We join you know, loyalty to the Lord Jesus Christ with, with also a winsomeness uh, toward, toward other brethren. You know, there's, there's, there's humility in both. There's humility in an unqualified allegiance to Christ, an unqualified allegiance to his doctrine, so that we're saying, we have to submit to what he says. We're not going to be so full of hubris and dispose of things that the Lord says we must believe or we must do. That's arrogance. It's humility to receive the word of God. But then that can be coupled with a gracious disposition in esteeming others higher than ourselves and loving others in, in, in seeking to uh, pray for the Lord's blessing on others and so on. Right, that generosity rather than exclusivity. Both of these things, maintaining closeness to Christ, all that he's been teaching. You know, John is going to stick to the Lord's side. He's not going off with the other group. And yet he's also learning to carry himself with godly love and to not forbid the work of the Lord Jesus Christ taking place despite its inadequacies. The fact is that no one group has 
a monopoly on all wisdom. No, no one has a monopoly on all, on all wisdom. You think about it. I mean, we, we need to be kind-hearted. We need to be large-hearted toward those who are seeking to serve the Lord Jesus Christ. We need to be we need to be thankful that sin is opposed, that Christ is preached, that the devil's kingdom is being pulled down, that Christ is being magnified, that souls are being converted. We should be rejoicing in these things. You'll know the language of Philippians 1, verse 18. What then, notwithstanding every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached, and I therein do rejoice, yea, and will rejoice. This is a heart thing, not just a theoretical thing. I'm going to rejoice if Christ is truly being preached. Does that mean that we're not grieved over error, false doctrine, worship, you know, ungodliness, worldliness? No, we are grieved over those things. But these two things can be held together. You think in terms of, so compare our congregation to a home. So you think of our congregation, right? The Lord's given us certain things. He's given us doctrinal standards and convictions and truth and light and all sorts of things which we're responsible for, right? This is our house. But you think in terms of of, of your home, you, you have your home and there are things that are done a certain way in your home. Obviously, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord, that. But I mean even at the practical level, right? Things are practically done different in your house. How you organize things and keep things and standards and all sorts of other things. And in your home, you do it the way your family does it. And you love it and you're not going to change it or you're going to improve it, if anything. But you don't just stay in your home. You go out the front door and out the porch and you go into the neighborhood and you have opportunity to go into your neighbor's homes and other people's homes. And their homes are different, very different. You think, you know, perhaps radically different than the way it is at your house. But you can interface with your neighbor and you can be loving and gracious and help them and serve them and encourage them and do all sorts of things and still go home. And home still stays the same, right? It's not as if you're gonna change your home to look like theirs. There's something, and maybe it's a, it's a, it's a somewhat weak analogy, but, or parallel. But you know, within the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, there are congregations, you know, there's denominations, there's churches. And, the Lord's given us what he's given us, and we're grateful for it. And in our house, we do it the Lord's way. What the Lord has given us deep convictions about regarding his way, what to believe, how to live, how to worship, and so on and so forth. And that's not changing. That is not on the table. But we can still go out the door and interact with other Christians who do preach Christ and who, who don't esteem his name lightly, who love him. And we can interface with them and encourage them and serve them and love them and truly rejoice that Christ is preached when he is preached, to esteem them, to learn from them, to benefit from their fellowship and so on. Do you see how these two things go together? This, this elevated spirit and this exclusive spirit, how both have to be uh, brought under the Lord Jesus Christ, how both of them, both the humility and love, have to be woven together. And what the Lord Jesus Christ does is he comes to us this evening and, 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 
and it's, it's beautiful and, and, and how he comes alongside of us and he begins to expose us. He begins to peel back the layers and he begins to show us things about ourselves that perhaps we, we, we don't always see. But it's with a view to actually lifting up the Lord's people, to, to supplying grace to the Lord's people, to, to set us in the right path of what is true greatness and what is truly pleasing uh, unto him. The Lord has stooped to us, even in ministering his word to us. And what a wonderful blessing that is to lay these things to heart, to realize it is a great thing to elevate others rather than ourselves, to rejoice even in the success of others, to benefit from the zeal of others and holding forth the name of, of the Lord Jesus Christ. The natural man has a high view of himself and a low view of God. The gospel delivers us a high view of God and a low view of ourselves. And Jesus and his mercy continues to work that truth into the warp and woof of our souls so that we can walk humbly before him and serving him and in esteeming those who seek to exalt his name. And may the Lord help us as we lay these things to heart. Let's stand together for prayer. O Lord, our God in heaven, our great and glorious God, our God who is high and lifted up above the highest heavens, full of majesty, whom the angels, who are unfallen, powerful beings, must clothe their faces before. O Lord, give us this sight, the glory of God. Give it to us, O Lord, in the face of Jesus Christ. Enable us to see ourselves more accurately. Enable us, O Lord, to look upon others more mercifully. O Lord, give us to be like the Redeemer, to be redeemed and saved by him and then sanctified by him, that we might walk in like manner as he walked. And we ask that it would be a means through which glory would be brought to him, that he, O Lord, would be glorified and all that we are, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.